unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas, having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept, I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Good morning. I thought I'd talk about Dogen, because we're going to be studying his fascicle uh, on the point of Zazen. I want to talk about why I appreciate him so much. Liam told me years ago that whenever I start uh, talking about Dogen, my face lights up. That's how I feel about it. So, the main thing that I thank him for and that I appreciate him for is the emphasis on Sazen. He's not about, he's not really about anything but Sazen. Mel told me years ago when I started here, he said, just talk about Sazen. And that is the hallmark of our school of Zen. I mean, and especially maybe the, the Suzuki Roshi lineage, I'm not sure, because I, I know that he emphasized it. And it's worthy of a lifetime of asking, what is this? Anyway. And he, and, and, uh, and everything he writes, you can feel it. Sometimes it's hard. I feel like he's encouraging me to sit zazen. He's encouraging me to practice. And that notion that practice is enlightenment comes from him. And I started to say I love that. That phrase gets used a lot too much in my opinions. Anyway, he encourages me. He encourages us, exhorts us to sit zazen. Sometimes it does, it feels like he's smacking us around. And sometimes it's not so obvious because of the way he expresses himself, which I also love. You know, that, that feel, that experience of him when he, he pulls the rug out from under you, or he takes, he takes a sort of a standard story um, and then flips it around and says, that's not it at all. He talks about um, Bodhidharma and his uh, disciples. Towards the end of his life, he asks them each to he asks them to express their understanding, you know. And I forget one says something about emptiness, and one says something about uh, I don't know. I don't remember. Anyway, they give you know. He says, "You have my flesh. You have my bones." There are only three of them? Anyway, the last one uh, is Uike, and Uike just bows and goes back to his place. And, and Bodhidharma says, you have my marrow. And he transmits his robe and bowl to Uike. And that's commonly understood that Uike had the deepest and the best understanding. But no. And then Dovin has a whole thing about it. You know, you shouldn't make 
you shouldn't make distinctions like that and you shouldn't think that way. And he also talks about, you know, not, he winds up talking about, um, you know, that, that women are not less likely to be enlightened and are um, equally capable of practicing and so on. And that's just one example. He does it all the time. So he challenges me. He challenges us. And I like that a lot. I like being challenged. I like the, his poetic nature. And I think in the in the struggle with it, the struggle to understand what he's talking about, my uh, my understanding deepens. You know, if it's like a Hallmark card, you know, you just say, "Oh, that's nice," but it doesn't. It it doesn't go to your gut. It doesn't go to your heart, and it doesn't necessarily stay with you. And I am grateful for that. I mean, sometimes. I'm sure we all, sometimes he drives me crazy. And sometimes I read something and I think, I have no idea, <laughs> no idea what you're talking about. But then it stays with me, or then I read it again and again, and it starts to, it starts to open up. Most all the time. And if I come back to it later, um, I've been reading some of the transmission fascicles, you know, and every time I read them, I learn more. And when I talk about them with others, I learn more. There's there's something. The word that's coming to me is substantial. I'm avoiding meat. <laughs> where's, there's beef there, you know. Where's the beef? There's beef there. If there is something substantial, something to really uh, <laughs> sink your teeth into. <laughs> and I'm deeply grateful for that. And that he is, he's speaking to me. He's speaking to you. He's speaking to his immediate followers. He's often especially in later years, speaking to the monks. And he had a lot of lay followers. And sometimes he's speaking to them. I think he would think of me as a lay person. I don't know. And he's, he'd certainly think to most of you as lay people. And I'm thinking of him as poetic. I think of a lot of his poems, and I think of imagery in his, in his essays also, and that it doesn't spring to mind, but often in his poems he, he talks about the beauty of nature. So that, um, that one is, is he's, you know, he's uh, traveling to Kyoto when he's uh, in his final illness, and he's this one that says, what is it, the, the moon over Kyoto, I don't remember I don't know exactly, but the moon over Kyoto for the last time. And you can feel his longing 
and his love of that beauty. And he often uses nature images for sure. Is it valley streams, the sound of the valley streams, the outline of the ridge is the outline of Buddha's body, and the sound of the valley streams is his voice. And in the Four Methods of Guidance of a Bodhisattva, which is one of his very accessible ones, he said you can, um, you can give a flower on a distant hill to the Tathagata. You can give a flower. And I think I'm going to stop because could, I probably could go on and talk about the, 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 the pines edges surrounded by um, what they, I think they're called cryptomeria. They were these huge pine tree kind of trees. And it probably was at his time. They, 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 I think they, you know, they built it in a forest. So it's not like they planted trees that were saplings in his lifetime. Probably looked much like it does now. And he was kind. He is kind. Even when he's scolding us, you, you know, you can feel it, that he's doing it because he thinks it's useful for us. He's not, he's not a mean-spirited person. Cranky occasionally. And you'll see when we start reading the Zazen Ching, when he differentiates our practice from the practice of others, he definitely expresses his contempt for those others. But still, there's a kindness to him. In the instructions, that not the, the, there's a book we've studied, the Tenzo Kyokun, which is um, the instructions to the Tenzo. But there's another uh, um, essay, or long essay, or it's guidance to the officers of the temple. And it's much less formal, and it's less poetic. It's more, what is it, didactic? At any rate, he's talking to the Tenso, and at one point he says to the Tenso, don't yell at the monks, you'll make them nervous. <laughs> That's just a, a totally different voice from the voice in the Tenso Kyokun. Try hardest, try hard, break your back. Get those mushrooms out to dry in the heat of the day, even though you're 80 years old. Don't do it, it's job. But that's not, that Tenzo Kyokun is sometimes you know, called you know, how to cook your life. It's about, about how, to, how to live and how to approach the world. And the um, instructions to the officers and the monastery is much more collegial and colloquial and um, he's talking to people that are kind of his peers or close enough. And he's still admonishing them, but he's not, he's not beating up on them. And I can't remember where it's, if it's written somewhere. I know in the movie Zen, there's a scene featuring 
Tetsugikai, whom he criticized towards the end of his life, he criticized Tetsugikai for not having grandmother or grandparental mind, which is described in the Tenso Kyokuma itself, is that the Tenso should have grandparental mind, the, the kindness of a grandparent, the love of a grandparent. And in the movie, Tetsugikai comes by the, uh, the kitchen area, and there's a young monk who is uh, cleaning greens and you know, getting them, getting ready the stuff for the next meal. And he confides to Tetsugikai that, um, that it's hard because he feels like he's falling behind the other monks because he doesn't, he doesn't have time to sit zazen very much. And so in that way, it's, it's hard for him. And Tetsugikai's advice is that, well, you could, you could uh, sit through the night. Let's get it. Like dealing with cleavers and something. <laughs> Fire. <laughs> I would cut off his finger and burn himself if, uh, if he didn't get some sleep each night. And Doen did not approve of that. And I think it was because of his kindness. He did believe that there should be that kind of uh, benevolence, the benevolence of a grandparent. It's a wonderful position to be in, not, not being the direct parent with responsibility for raising the child and disciplining the child and teaching the child and so on, and, and uh, worry about their diet. And you're the grandparent. <laughs> you could give them some chocolate. You know, let them have, I don't know, cocoa puffs for breakfast. <laughs> he was courageous. Going to uh, you know, the, the, the shogun wanted him to come and help him because the, the shogun was driving himself nuts with uh, horrific bad dreams about the wars he'd fought and the people he had killed. You know, when he went and the, the shogun is at that point, you know, he, he could have just killed him. He could have killed him and nothing would have happened to the shogun. Right, legally. But would have added one more person to his legion. Now, I don't mean, I know that you, know, you probably have the, the scene of uh, the Shogun fighting all those heads flying around, the heads are moaning, and, and then Dogen says something, and the Shogun uh, is about to uh, kill him, and, and Dogen and his attendant just you know, sit down, sit zazen, and the Shogun finally throws his sword away and goes and sits with him. I don't know that that exactly happened, so I, I've never read that anywhere. But I know he did go, and he did um, help the man, and he did teach him. And given how bloody that guy was, it takes some courage to go and tell him, you sit down, 
And he went off and started a hate. He, I'm not quite sure what, how to describe it. I started, maybe he stood up to the Tendai monks who were so, they really were corrupt. And they really did have little uh, sort of ninja armies. And they really did burn down his temple. And he, he did not, he didn't go challenge them. And he, when he came back from China, he was living in what, that kind of temple. And, and uh, they were, uh, you know, drinking and whoring and uh, probably, I just think maybe they had sort of a mafia style uh, collection thing where they go in this, you know, protection racket. I don't know that they did that. But it wouldn't surprise me. At any rate, he was there. He didn't, he didn't go invade where they were, you know, drinking and eating and, and carousing, you know, and shake his finger at him. He just did what he did. And then as soon as he could, he went somewhere else. And he was teaching that the only true way was Zazen, and that's not what they wanted to teach, and that's not what they thought. And they were very threatened by him. And he kept teaching. And they burned down his temple. And so he went off and started aging with support. There was a nobleman whose name I can't remember, but the, the guy that supported him. But that must have taken a lot of courage because those people that opposed him were very powerful. And going off to the wilds of Fukui province, Ejizen, it going off there and starting a Heiji, that's a huge big deal. Also, he wanted to avoid the uh, court, he wanted to avoid Kyoto. And that also shows a lot of integrity, and he was clear about not, not getting entangled with, with court life. And he must have had some idea of it. He left when he was 12, I think, to go off and live uh, with his uncle at a monastery. So 12 years old is old enough to see what goes on at uh, the royal court, where his father had been a big wig and his mother was uh, a widow, but still she was from a noble family. And he felt it best to avoid that because well, there's a line in it early on in the Four Methods of Guidance. Something or another is to, to curry favor. Anyway, that, that he saw people currying favor. We would say brown nosing. <laughs> and he just he just did not want to play. And he didn't. And so it was also the reason why it's a big deal for him to go to the shogun when he was when he was asked. But he got it. 
you know, the shogun wanted to uh, shower him with a rich temple right near Kyoto, for example, and, and he was often offered, like, I don't know, I think they're purple robes or something, you know, really, really fancy robes, and he said no. He just wore his brown robe. And I think it does show a lot of integrity, and I admire that tremendously. And in not transmitting Tetsugikai, he refused to transmit Tetsugikai because he said, you don't have grandmotherly mind, you need to work on that. And uh, so Tetsugikai was later transmitted, but not by, by Dogen. Um, Kon Ejo transmitted him. And I don't know whether that would have been a big deal then, but it, it would be hard now to, you know, because, you know, people, it, it's, um, it's not supposed to be by um, seniority, it's not supposed to be automatic that you receive Dharma transmission, but it kind of gets that way, you know, unless there's some reason why you wouldn't, like, um, Blanche's husband, Lou Hartman, he didn't want to be transmitted. He didn't believe in it, so he, he, he never received armor transmission. Um, and he, he didn't have like positions in the temple particularly either, except wonderful old curmudgeon. <laughs> um, we had quite a few of those, actually. <laughs> My teacher was bordering. <laughs> um, but at any rate, uh, I don't know if there was pressure then, back then to, to do it because he was sort of, you know, he was one of the very, very, very senior three or four. And I love his uh, poetic nature. I, I, I like not just talking about his poetry, one of which a major poem in, in the, in the Bastable Sasenshin. He, uh, uh, you know, he, almost at the end, he uh, includes the poem Zazenshin, which is her name. The water is clear all the way to the bottom. A fish swims like a fish. But also the way he expresses himself. I mean, now I don't, you know, I don't speak Japanese at all, and I sure don't speak medieval Japanese. But you know, you can read. You can read different translations and, and, and get a sense of it, especially depending on the translator. I'm going to try to figure out, I sent you a link to a translation by Carl Bielfeld, and I have to figure out how to get it, how, how it is possible to uh, copy it or print it out. It's on a site, it's called Terabes, I think, and um, my, at least my uh, computer would not print it. So, if somebody has, I mean, it, 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 it's what I think it's in a black background with sort of orangey colored letters. <laughs> so it's hard to just take a picture of it. But it's, a, you know, the fascicle is about eight, nine pages. So it's not one that you could just type it up. Maybe I, AI could do it. I don't know. Anyway, but the, the poetry in his work is palpable, and uh, and I think it's part of why why it challenges you. Because like a poem, you know, you read it, 
you have to read it some of them a, a number of times before they even begin to open themselves to you. Or you get to the point where you're able to open yourself to it. Um, there was a wonderful article in the Nation magazine like 25 years ago, and it was something like, uh, I don't remember exactly, but it's like, the wonder of poetry is in the resistance to poetry, something like that. <laughs> you know, and the, one, the ones that get you and you think, what? What? I, I'm sorry, I'm not a big fan of Mary Oliver. I met some a friend of mine, and she's not either, came up in a meeting the other day. I practically hugged her. <laughs> anyway, I mean, Mary Oliver is fine, and she's too easy. She's too easy to be, I think. Um, and and uh, if you don't have to struggle with it, and I'm not talking about sweating bullets, but don't, you don't have to struggle with it a little, at least a little bit. Um, I don't think it sticks with you the same way. And it doesn't become yours. I don't mean yours in a grasping way, but yours in the sense that it gets down inside you and ferments for the rest of your life. And that's how he is. That's, you know, when you think of the Genjo Koman or the Fukan Zazengi that we chant so often, you know, lines from these things come to you every so often. Without, un unbidden, that's where they come unbidden. So, that's my love letter. My love, le love lecture, that's better. <laughs> Does anybody have any comments or questions or additions or subtractions? Subtractions? Oh, Steve. First time I encountered Dogen was what was called the Mountains and River Sashin, which Berkeley, Berkeley Zen Center, a guy named Kim Naub sort of spearheaded this thing, and it was based on, why am I getting into the history, based on Gary Snyder? Anyway, that's not what I wanted to say. Um, we, would, we would go for three or four days to Point Reyes usually, and we'd do um, quite a bit of sitting. It was a, a six-mile hike in um, with backpacks. But that was my first experience of a Sashin and my first experience of Dogen. So um, we were reading the Mountains and Rivers Sutra at that time. And so my first exposure to Dogen was this guy saying, you may think that the mountains are not walking, but the mountains are walking. You may think that the rivers are flowing, but they are still, you know, he's just saying all these counterintuitive things. And I went away saying, I think they really like Dogen here. <laughs> if I stick around, does that mean I have to learn to like this guy? <laughs> and guess what happened? He's uh, pretty much my favorite writer now, so. <laughs> but he, he grows on you. Oh, yeah. That's one of the complicated ones. You know, some of the fasticles yeah. are really difficult. Anybody else? Is that? I'm not the most poetic type of literary, but I really like that we have that, I'm going to call it picture of Dogen, and especially the poster in there. And I look at them every time I come, and um, 
not to idolize or anything, but just to sort of, okay, now I can sit. <laughs> just like he's here a little bit. Mm -hmm. and um, He's here a lot, actually, we have him here. Yes. That's Mr. Johnson. And I think it's cool that we're named after one of his, is it a poem? That's all. Anybody else? Dana? Well, I love poetry, I have to say that. And, but Dogen sticks with me, and he's always by my bedside. And um, I find no matter where I'm at, I will read through there and I'll find something new. So I keep moving, there's a moon in a dewdrop uh -huh. right beside my bed. And I'll often go back through what we've read together again, and it's always something new. And occasionally, like you said, things will come up and mm -hmm. there'll be a line that comes from us, from mm -hmm. our talks. And um, it's helped me a lot. And I think it could help other people too. <laughs> and uh, one more thing, right when you said, what is this? We could keep asking that. That's when she knocked on the door and said, what is this? That was kind of an interesting synchronicity. And um, I, I really enjoy hearing you share the, I mean, it's a vast amount of knowledge that you condense for us, the story of him so that we can carry with us too. These are numberless, I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Karma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to become it. Beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to become it. Beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to become it.